Remember that line in Blazing Saddles right at the very beginning? The one that goes, what in the wild, wild world of sports is a going on here? That line is what I think of every time I talk to Shahan Jayaraja. Now, that's not because he looks like Slim Pickens, Harvey Corman, or even Madeline Kahn, but because I truly, truly have no idea what's a going on in the wild, wild world of sports. Still, I'm excited to bring you this interview with Shahan as our first episode of the Beta Line Foundation's rebranded and relaunched podcast, Direct Line. I'm Jonathan Platt, editor-in-chief of the Beta Line magazine, and I'm so excited to be here with you. Specifically, I'm excited for you to hear about my conversation with Shahan because, like every other industry, COVID has impacted the world of sports in major ways. What do some of those changes look like, and what can we expect for the rest of football season in 2020? In this episode, I'm discussing how to follow football in the crazy year that is 2020, and what to watch for from Baylor, how to feel excited about a football season full of uncertainty, and how high school and college athletes are responding to racial injustice and making waves across the sports industry. My guest is, like I mentioned, Shahan Jayaraja. Shahan wasn't born into a sports family, but found his way home quickly thanks to a little help from some mediocre mid-2000s Chicago Bulls teams. He didn't grow up a college football fan, but fell in love with the culture of the sport after going to college at Baylor, where he graduated in 2016. Before joining Dave Campbell Texas Football, where he's currently a college sports reporter, Shahan covered Big 12 and SEC football with Cox Media Group. He contributed to the Dallas Morning News' coverage of Baylor and his had his work appear in Sports Illustrated, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and the Austin American Statesman, among many other places. He and his wife, Bargavi, live in the Dallas area. In this episode, you're going to hear how the COVID-19 pandemic has changed the current football season, what it's like to be a sports writer during such an unprecedented, often virtual time, what to watch for during the remainder of Baylor's football season, fingers crossed, I really enjoyed the conversation Shahan and I had towards the end of this episode about how high school and college football players across Texas are taking stands against racial injustice. Here's my interview with Shahan Jayaraja. Alrighty. Hey, Shahan, welcome to the Direct Line podcast. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very I'm doing excited. well. I'm doing well. Yeah, that's good. I'm very excited to talk to you. Uh, Shahan, uh, I know you because we met years ago uh, at the Lariat working there at the same time. But for those who don't know you, um, could you kind of just give us your spiel, what you're up to, what you're doing uh, from your time at Baylor and now into your time at Texas football? Yeah, well, I'm a 2016 Baylor grad. Like like Jonathan said, we met in the Baylor journalism department. We worked at the Baylor Lariat together. We have lots and lots of stories from our time there, to say the least. Um, you know, and so I'm a sports writer. Uh, after school, I went and uh, worked out in Atlanta for Cox Media Group. We had like a college football vertical. I covered the Big 12 and the SEC. And now I'm back home in Texas, uh, up in the DFW area, working for Dave Campbell's Texas Football as their college insider. Now, we're really known for high school football coverage but they basically brought me on because they wanted to uh, to bolster that college coverage so for me 
doing a lot of, uh, I, I cover college football at every level. You know, I do the big schools, the Texases, the Baylors, the Texas A&Ms, but we do everything down from the big schools all the way down to the small schools. I actually just finished an article today about a former coach at East Texas Baptist, a division three school. Like we do it top to bottom. Uh, we, we do it all. That's fun. That's fun. You were telling me uh, before we got started that you're working on a bunch of like features right now. How is your work different in coronavirus than it would have been in just like a general season right now? Well, the first thing that obviously I have to say about it is that a lot of the schools that we would normally cover aren't playing right now. Uh, you know, so every school below FBS, for the most part, there are some exceptions, uh, are not playing football right now. So FCS, Division Two, II, Division Three, all of them are pushed to the spring. Now, there's some individual uh, FCS teams that are playing, but they're kind of doing like almost an outlaw schedule. They're just kind of scheduling games, trying to get things on the on the schedule, right? And so, you know, for us, it means that there's only about 16 teams that we really are having to pay attention to versus in a normal year, you know, not that we do everything on everything, but we have 47 teams that are playing football at any given time across the divisions of football. So from that perspective, in some ways it's, it's made it a little easier. Now, obviously the thing that's been weird is the schedules for a lot of these big schools are completely different. You know, as, as people who follow Baylor know, right, they were only scheduled to have a 10-game schedule instead of a 12-game schedule, and it's spread out a lot more. And then on top of that, we've had these cancellations. Like, obviously, Baylor-Houston was canceled. Baylor-Louisiana Tech was canceled. Houston's actually had five games canceled so far, which is unbelievable, right? Like, just something that we could have never seen coming. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a lot of it is adjusting on the fly, and a lot of it is trying to figure out how to get used to – you know, this new normal of basically not knowing what anything's going to be day to day. Yeah. You said that uh, normally there are 47 teams that Dave Campbell, Texas football would cover. Uh, if you were, maybe, you know, the exact number, if not, could you give a, like a round estimate of how many you're covering this season instead of 47? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that it's probably somewhere around 15 about uh, during the fall. So, uh, so there are, usually 12 FBS teams, but Rice at this point has not come back from a, they, they kind of push things. They're the only conference USA team uh, along with old dominion that have kind of pushed things and, and not played as yet. We'll see whether they come back, but so they're kind of out right now, but then on top of the 11 FBS teams that are playing and, and Houston, again, that plans to play. Uh, we, we're also looking at Stephen F. Austin, Abilene Christian, uh, West Texas A&M and Angelo State are playing, and I think I'm missing one, but uh, Houston Baptist is another. So it's like 15, 16. It's a lot less than we usually would have. Yeah. Back uh, back on September 13th, uh, at this point, when we're talking at the beginning of October, you know, that's half a month behind us, um, you wrote that this season won't be like any other. We hadn't played a, a, a game of football yet, I don't think. Maybe one on the 12th. Um, even in those three weeks that have passed since then, uh, what do you see that has come true in that sentence, that this season won't be like any other? And what has surprised you uh, even more so than what you expected to happen? Well, I'll be honest. To, to some extent, Every time that we play a football game, every time we're able to go to a stadium, see something on TV, it's a little bit surprising, right? I mean, just because, you know, I, I can't speak to everybody listening, but, you know, for the most part, for the last six months, you know, I've been inside, right? I've been sort of trying to stay safe. I've been trying to follow the protocols. You know, I've been spending a ton of time, uh, you know, with my family necessarily. 
And so to have this thing of normalcy is almost a little strange, but uh, in, in a good way, obviously. You know, thankfully the numbers, uh, for the most part, have been okay coming from these games. Now, you know, uh, we obviously have to hope that this stays heading forward, especially now that the big schools are kind of coming back in earnest and, and you know, the Big 12 schools and the SEC schools are in some of the areas that are most affected by this virus. So hopefully this stays the case. Um, you know, and, and in terms of things that are weird, I mean, the scheduling is crazy. Like usually college football scheduling, what ends up happening is, is you're talking about, uh, you know, years in advance, like 10, 11 years in advance, people are making their schedules uh, for non-conference play, especially. And now, I mean, again, we had this Baylor-Houston game pop out out of thin air, right? This, this would never happen in a, in a normal year. And yeah. on top of that, it, it's definitely been a weird sensation uh, going in and seeing the, the restrictions on people. So, you know, obviously most stands have been limited to 25% capacity, if not a little less than that at some other schools. Uh, there's also limitations on the sidelines. There's also limitations on photographers. There's limitations on media members. It, it's just everything is smaller than it used to be. Uh, and it has to be, obviously, <laughs> during this time. But uh, it's definitely been strange to kind of see that play out in practice. Yeah. Yeah. So, so speaking of media members, other than things like social distancing and wearing a mask, how is being at the stadium covering the game different? And how does that actual reporting uh, reporting differ? I know you and I have talked um, like outside of this uh, about how you expected this season to be uh, a lot more of like pregame prep than actually, you know, writing up at the end of the game, something uh, that kind of summarizes all of it. Has that been the case so far? And how have things been like different in the actual role of reporting on the live game? It's kind of funny, right? Uh, you don't necessarily realize how different it is to uh, to lose some of the stuff that you have until you actually have to experience it, right? Because, yeah. you know, a lot of the press conferences, for example, have been over Zoom. Well, I mean, that doesn't seem that different, right? Like, I mean, a lot of schools have uh, press conferences in, in, like, a press conference setting where they're passing around a mic and all that. And this is just, like, a computer version of that. But it really is so different to, to not have that personal interaction. You really do feel the difference. And I do think that it, it does come across at times in the writing that, that you lose something there, I think. Um, you know, just not being able to, to kind of see – you know, you get the words, you get to see their face, all that sort of stuff, but you lose kind of the the tenor of the room, you lose the ambiance, you lose, and, and that's true, I think, for uh, for anything that we're not doing in person so far this year. And, you know, for media members, the, the biggest difference has been that they're limiting the amount of media members who are able to come to these games. Uh, thankfully, it hasn't affected my outlets. Uh, thankfully, you know, we're, we're pretty well respected around the state, but, um, you know, I, I definitely know that there are some outlets that haven't been able to get their reporters into the game when normally they would have, right? Because uh, a lot of schools are trying to, you know, let in maybe a third as many people into the press box as they would in a given week, including operations and staff, by the way. Uh, you know, they're trying to limit that number as well. And yeah. so, you know, for, for us, uh, the other thing too is obviously, I mean, like anywhere else, you know, we have to wear masks the entire time we're in the stadium. Uh, you know, I, some people make a big thing about like the pregame meals that, that sports writers get. And I mean, I don't know, it's never, never been my thing, but you know, it is, it is kind of weird that, you know, a lot of the time before the games, you're talking about a spread. Now a lot of the places are doing more like box stuff and, and saying like, you have to eat right here. You have to be spread out, all that sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just definitely a different experience to not get to 
I guess experience as much of it in person, even when you're in the building. Yeah. Yeah. So when, like when you're in the building, uh, are there plastic dividers? Are there like X's and arrows on the floor, like directing you? I know um, that I walked campus uh, maybe a month ago at this point, right when things were really starting to get uh, started. And uh, you and I have talked about the tents on campus. Um, I took a peek inside of those. Uh, there's, you know, plastic dividers everywhere. Um, there's arrows on the ground inside of like Moody on you can only walk, you know, forward on, on this side of it. And the other side has a plastic divider down the middle and they're walking the opposite way. Um, and there's tons of stickers on the floors telling you about like social distancing. Is that taking place behind the scenes for sports writers as well? Not so much. So uh, I will say that, uh, that you're really starting to see kind of how on their own schools were to try to figure all this stuff out because so many different schools have taken different measures. So for example, I went and covered a game at Texas state earlier in the year, right? And Texas state doesn't have the biggest press box. So limiting media isn't really an option for them just because of, uh, you know, to, to a large extent, just because of how many people uh, they can fit into their press box. Like you'd be talking about like three media members and you, right. know, you can't do that. Um, and so they tried to do the thing where, where they had the plastic dividers and, uh, and you know, it was, it was kind of funny because, you know, they were just spread out differently based on where you were. And like, so I had like a really small space and people have bigger spaces. So it was definitely a little weird. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I will admit I was a little closer uh, to people than I would have liked to have been during this time. But again, they, they kind of figured the dividers were enough, but like, you know, the spacing was less of a priority. Again, they kind of had to come up with this on their own. Whereas yeah. TCU, we did not have, um, we did not have dividers, but we had like three seats in between us and we're always given uh, assigned seats and we're always given like, you have to sit here specifically. Um, you know, you can get up and walk around a little bit for sure, but they definitely were a little more strict about, all right, just try to try to stay where you are a little bit more, but they were very sp- uh, spread out. You know, uh, TCU has a, a pretty big press box. I haven't been to Baylor so far this year, but, um, but they also have a pretty big press box. So I imagine that they will also be spread out. The other thing that's good about Baylor is that usually they open windows um, in the press box during games. So that should be an added benefit that you don't necessarily get other places, but you know, I will say, like, it's, it's tough to figure out for a lot of these schools how to manage sort of that, that common area. Um, again, yeah. TCU's got a big, that common area. Baylor's got a big, that common area. And one school that doesn't, and a school that I'm going to honestly be a little hesitant to maybe go to this year is Texas. Texas has a really small kind of back area behind, uh, behind their press area, right? And so... Um, at this point, we haven't kind of been told where to go, what to do necessarily. We're just kind of told keep six feet apart. And we're not so overrun with people that, um, that you know, it's kind of mayhem per se. Yeah. But, uh, but it definitely is. It's been kind of interesting and a little scary almost to, to realize how on their own schools are trying to figure out their own procedures. Yeah, I, um, I didn't realize um, how thoroughly and differently Baylor was responding to this uh, crisis uh, until, honestly, football started. Like I, like I assumed just out of naivety uh, that the rest of the schools were responding like this, that the rest of the schools were being as um, enforcing and, you know, forethoughtful as Baylor is. Uh, and then I found out that uh, last week someone from the White House came and like recognized Baylor for it's just, you know, national standard 
of like readiness for it. It was very, very neat to see. Um, and, and of course, then you start seeing things a lot differently of like, oh yeah, that probably is, you know, a much safer uh, option to provide than to kind of just trust students or faculty or staffing or, or visitors to just police themselves. Uh, so, so I've become, you know, it's like, it's like when you're looking for a new car and all of a sudden all you see is that car on the road ever since like being like made aware of how thoroughly, and I, and I knew Baylor was responding very well. Um, but I, I've just become more and more aware of just how, thorough and clear Baylor is responding to this. Um, so, so you haven't been to McLean Stadium yet this semester, um, and you talked about having been to like Texas State and TCU and what it might look like for, for Texas. Are there any instances going forward in the season that you see yourself actually uh, doing remote coverage, just you and Bargaby in your apartment, you know, or you at the office watching the game, do you see yourself doing that in any capacity? Yeah, I I definitely do. And I mean, so I actually did in week three. Now it was because I was scheduled to go to that Baylor Houston game. It got canceled on Friday. Right. And so at that point, you know, there's no real point in trying to scramble too much to try to figure something out. You know, you just kind of take the lump and and do what you would have done for everything else. Right. And so, um, but, you know, there definitely have been weeks where, where, you know, I've looked ahead and been like, I don't know if there's a good place. I don't know whether it's a good trip. I've definitely been a little more hesitant to, to kind of travel. Um, you know, I did it again. I did the trip to San Marcos to Texas State, but the two other games that I've been to were TCU and North Texas, which were, you know, driving distance day trips for me. Right. And so, um, yeah. and, and I'll be honest, right. Like it is part of my consideration uh, trying to figure out where I'm going to go. If I feel like, school in that community is going to take it seriously right because I don't want to put myself in a compromised position for example sure. right like it I mean you know I, I for people who don't know I mean my family's been touched by COVID right like this is not something that we want to not take seriously and and we were taking it seriously before but especially after uh you know some stuff happened to my family back in July like we're, we're not going to do that it's not worth it for me to maybe get one better quote, maybe, you know, meet one more person. It's not worth it if it's going to come at the expense of, you know, worrying about my safety. And, and again, like, I think that all the schools are trying their best, right? I think that all of them, you know, the leadership, I've only heard good things from the sports information staff is trying their hardest, even, even all the football coaches and and athletic staff, like they're trying really hard. But, you know, you just obviously at the same time, you know, you don't control what's going on in your community. You don't control the people who are coming into the press box. Because that's one of the things, you know, for us uh, in terms of screening, like some places have done temperature checks. uh, Some have just kind of asked surveys at the door and some have kind of not done anything because what, what can you do? Right. Like, I mean, I, you know, that's the thing that, that kind of becomes an issue with like temperature checks. Like that's at least one level of screening, but that doesn't, save anybody right like that doesn't prevent people from coming in who might spread the virus and so you know it really does come down to you know you do have to think to a certain extent situation is it worth it in this situation uh you know will do i feel safe that you know if i go into this community if i'm around you know x group of people is this going to be something i'm going to have to worry about and and so yeah i mean i definitely think that you know even heading forward uh that's going to be something that's certainly going to be a high consideration. Yeah. Um, back, uh, I mean, months ago, you and I had talked about 
what a football season without uh, spring training and spring ball would look like. Uh, having had four weeks to watch this now, uh, just across the board, what are you seeing in, in terms of trends and how has that, uh, your prediction of lacking spring training affected uh, the actual like playing of football in the fall? Well, it's been really sloppy, to be completely honest. Um, you know, I think that I think that people who watch this program and, and listen are, are certainly Big 12 fans. You know, we we saw Oklahoma in their first week. They have four turnovers and lose to Kansas State. Uh, we see TCU, you know, they kind of almost surrender a first half against Iowa State because they take so long to kind of figure things out. Texas, you know, they go on the road to Texas Tech and they look disorganized for a lot of that second half, right? Like, this is something that I think that we all expected to some extent, but it's weird to see it play out in practice. And you also have to add that with the fact that, you know, when you're going to road games, there's also not as many fans there, you know, it's not as much of a home field advantage necessarily. And, you know, we saw, for example, uh, Mississippi State goes on the road, beats defending national champion LSU on their home field, right? Gives them their first loss in 17 games, I think it is, right? So like, this stuff is not normal right this is this is such an abnormal situation teams don't look as prepared uh you're really starting to see to some extent that the the teams that have experience coming back that are kind of able to just keep it rolling that's been a big factor and the other thing too you know uh, thinking back to that tcu game that i was at last week uh i know that they had a lot of players who missed time in fall camp because of contact tracing so we're starting to see that there are guys who not only missed the spring but also didn't get to practice as much in the fall. And you put him out on the field and, and you realize, man, there is a big difference between this guy being here versus here. There's a big difference between this guy knowing that this guy's going to do this and maybe not knowing, right? These yeah. little things all add up. Uh, and, and I think that you lose spring camp. Spring camp, the big thing is uh, spring is when you learn what your coach wants you to do. Fall is kind of when you start trying to build that into, this is what we're going to do against our opponents. Right. And so, it kind of was clear early on in the season that uh, that a lot of these teams didn't look like they were totally ready to know what to do. And, you know, I think that's a credit actually to Baylor is that Baylor actually looked pretty good in their first game. Even this is a new coaching staff. This is a first-time head coach. They looked pretty prepared. Now, I do think that especially offensively, I expect it to get better. But, um, but you know, it, it's a real difficult situation for, for teams that are making changes because they have to go and all of a sudden teach their players how to do a whole bunch of new stuff without the opportunity to have a chance to teach them. Yeah. You, um, uh, running off of the, the, the new coach line, uh, in your summary, uh, like kind of like your, your, your pitch to what for watch for in each game, uh, your summary of the Baylor-Kansas game ends uh, with the most interesting storyline. What does the new offense under Larry Fedora look like? How did that play out? We're recording this on October 1st after the, the first season or the first game of, of, of Baylor's season. Uh, how, did that, how did that new leadership play out? Well, I think that it was clear that the offense is going to be a little bit of a work in progress. Um, and I will say, you know, for, for people who, who watched that game and maybe thought, you know, it wasn't what they expected – you know, a lot of that offense is based on timing. A lot of that offense is based on, you know, especially that pass offense. Because I actually think that Charlie Brewer looked pretty bad in that game. But but I don't 
credit that as much to him as much as I think it'll just take some time. And so, you know, when you look at an offense like that, Larry Fedora's offense is based around quick reads. It's based around quick passing game. It's based around the receiver is going to be here and you got to anticipate he's going to be here. Right. And so that's something that needs reps. That's something that needs time. Um, And the other aspect that you add to that is again, uh, you know, we know that, uh, the offensive line, you know, had multiple people missing because of contact tracing. That's why they had to cancel that Baylor-Houston game. They also had three kids out who were potentially starters for them this past week because uh, because of various reasons, you know, some maybe uh, contact tracing. There also might have been a suspension there, right? So you're talking about an offense, especially up front, which is where offense starts, uh, that wasn't what it's going to be. And still, you know, I I think that a lot of the concepts looked really good. We got to see some of those receivers really have big days. Uh, You know, trust who in every phase of the game, we thought that this was a guy who maybe would be able to be a breakout player. So I think seeing already that this is an offense that's going to fit Baylor's personnel really well but it's going to take some time for them to get ready. Now that they've played a game, uh, you know, we'll see whether that's enough to kind of keep them moving forward. You know, they play West Virginia this week. Um, and, and now that they've got Kansas under their belt, they've had a chance to review, uh, you know, this is, this is where a read was missed. This is where the timing was off. They're going to get a chance to work on it and practice this week. And at this point, we don't know, uh, you, know you know, we don't think that any major players are missing time with contact tracing, which is a big deal. They just have a full week of practice. So it's going to be interesting to see what improvement there is from week one to week two, because that's something that you hear a lot is that coaches always say from week one to week two is the biggest improvement because you know where you stand. So now they've had a chance to do that. Um, it'll be interesting to see what they make of it. How much of a disadvantage do you think it is that the difference between week one and week two is actually the difference between week four and week five in conference play? It's definitely a weird deal, right? Um, And and obviously for Baylor and TCU, like they lost their non-conference games. They didn't get a chance to tune up. And and I'll say, I mean, Texas and Oklahoma both had chances to tune up too. And it's still, you know, it still wasn't necessarily totally there, right? Um, Usually we have a three-game lead in into these things. And the way that almost every program uh, structures their non-conference schedule, at least in the Big 12, is, you know, they have like one truly easy game, right? Then they have one maybe, you know, sort of moderate level group of five team, a team that you'll beat, but a team that will do something against you. And then maybe one like actually good game. And you kind of lead up into those stuff. Yeah. And this year, you know, we saw Oklahoma played uh, Missouri State, who's a nobody, right? A terrible team. Uh, we saw, for example, Iowa State played Louisiana, who's an actually good team. Um, and Baylor was set to play against Louisiana Tech, who's probably in between those two things. And Houston, who would have been a really tough matchup, actually. Um, so, you know, it is kind of interesting that you don't kind of get to see a ramp up into conference play. You're having to just jump right into it. And that's something that we definitely saw last week from TCU uh, playing against Iowa State, who's the team that's going to win eight games probably uh yeah. well I, seven games in this in this new this new format and you know with Baylor they got a chance to to you know it was really lucky for them that they got to open against Kansas a team that they're expected to beat because they got a chance to work some of these kinks out you know that Baylor team that showed up on Saturday if they're playing against Oklahoma they lose right if they're playing against right. Texas they lose and thankfully they'll have a little bit of time before they have to do that but um but yeah, yeah. I mean again it, it's just such an adjustment to, because you don't know the power of your team until you go against another team. You, you just yeah. Don't. yeah. Other other than uh, Tristan Ebner, who are some of the players that you're going to be watching over the next few games, and I guess the rest of the Baylor season. Sure. 
Uh, so on defense, you know, the, the guy who you really need to be watching is Terrell Bernard. Uh, he's a linebacker. Some people might remember last season, Clay Johnson was a starting middle linebacker, and he got hurt in the Texas Tech game last year. And Terrell Bernard stepped in and was phenomenal, like absolutely fantastic. We actually named Terrell Bernard the best linebacker in the state uh, in the preseason edition of Dave Campbell's Texas Football. Uh, he and he showed everything that you expected from him against Kansas. You know, he was dynamic. Uh, he w- he played a little bit more of a coverage role last week and did a great job of doing that. Um, he's just a tremendously dynamic player, and especially with James Lynch off to the NFL, he's really the centerpiece of that Baylor defense. And if they're going to be a special unit, it's going to start with him. And on the offensive side of the ball, uh, you know, Tristan Abner, like you mentioned, is a guy. But, you know, the other running back, too, John Lovett, he looked really good last week. Um, and, and, you know, he does a lot of the little things. You know, he, he doesn't necessarily rush for 100 yards every single game. But, you know, he's just one of those guys who can get you short yardage gains. He's a great pass blocker. He just does everything right on a football field. Um, and, and you know, the other guy who I'd maybe ask, uh, tell you to, to keep an eye out for is Gavin Holmes. So Gavin Holmes is a wide receiver. Um, and actually, he he had the worst luck to start his career. He was part of that 2017 recruiting class. Uh, and I believe he broke his leg his freshman year and then tore his ACL the year after that and basically lost the first couple of years of his career, but he's back. He looked really good in the first game. And Baylor's a lot of wide receiver talent that Charlie Brewer can take advantage of, but he's one guy who people might not know who I expect to play a big role. Yeah. Speaking of Brewer, what do you think the rest of the season has for him? Well, I, I think that, this offense is a really good fit for Charlie Brewer. I I think that, you know, he came from an offense that played like this in high school at Lake Travis under head coach Hank Carter. And he was one of the best high school players that we've ever seen playing in this kind of system. He actually broke the national record for completion percentage at 77%, which is just a stupid number, right? And that's one of those things that, uh, that's why you expect that playing in this offense, playing with another kind of read and react pace and space guy, that he's going to be able to have a lot of success is because we've seen him do it before. And so I I think that this offense down the line is going to be a really good fit for Brewer. It's going to allow him to kind of be a little bit more of a facilitator than having to kind of step up, run around, make all the plays like he kind of had to do last year, which I think is going to be a really good fit for him. And I I expect him to have a big year. You know, he didn't look the part in the first game against Kansas, which is to be expected to some extent moving to a new offense and, and not having as much practice time. But I think that this is going to be a really good fit. And I think this could be his best year yet. Yeah. Across the across the rest of the Big 12, who do you think Baylor should really be watching out for the most? Well, I think that Oklahoma is obviously an easy answer. Uh, you know, even though they lost against Kansas State, that's going to be a team that they're going to have to keep an eye on every single week. Uh, the other team, and, and I'll also throw Texas into that camp, you know, we already know that you have to watch out for Texas and Oklahoma. But the team that, that's kind of a little bit of an underrated pick is Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State didn't look very good in their first game against Tulsa. They looked like a team that was disorganized. Um, But, you know, in their second game against West Virginia, the defense really stepped up and played a big role. Uh, Again, Jared Dagey is a good player. He still got his yards, but that offense just wasn't the same as it looked the week before. And so I think that Oklahoma State has a whole lot of upside. Uh, Their quarterback, who they're hoping to get back soon, is Spencer Sanders, who we named Mr. Texas Football back in 2018 for his performance in high school. He showed last year he has the chance to be really, really special. And they just have so much talent around him, too. You know, Chuba Hubbard's a guy at running back who's going to be in the NFL. Uh, Tylen Wallace is a guy who was a finalist for the Blitnikoff Award two years ago for best wide receiver in the country. So 
they have a lot on both sides of the ball. And actually, again, the fact that their defense was the unit that's looked strongest through the first two games of the season is really good news because you can trust Mike Gundy to get offense figured out. Uh, so if I was going to look at a team and, and that wasn't Texas or Oklahoma to really challenge for the Big 12 crown, I think Oklahoma State is that team. So we've spent a lot of time talking about how coronavirus has upended the season in 2020, uh, but there's another theme that's been running through a lot of this year that has really caused a lot of national conversations to pop up, and that's playing out in a, a very um, a big way, not only in just like general culture, but in football. And uh, at the beginning of September, you published an article with uh, Texas football that talks about the Texas high school athletes who are finding their voice on racial injustice. Uh, in that article, you mentioned Bobby Taylor, who's from Katy, Texas, and about some of the decisions that he has made after seeing uh, the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha and some of the things around that. And you also mentioned the team of Queen City back in East Texas. Uh, could you talk through like those two pieces uh, playing out across Texas? And, and then the other thing that I'm curious about is while those can easily seem like isolated incidents, um, you and I both know that they're not, that they are part of a movement and a fabric that is changing across the nation. How do you see that interacting with college play in the year of 2020? Well, let's start with the high school kids. So um, so Bobby Taylor, who's a big-time cornerback at Katy, he's actually, uh, you know, a player who's going to be playing at a high-level college uh, heading forward. You know, he's like a blue-trip recruit and all that. I believe Baylor's actually offered him. And so he's a kid who uh, who decided basically that, that he's had enough. You know, after the Jacob Blake shooting and after the, the, the event where obviously a, a, a protester was killed by a gunman in Kenosha, uh, he just had enough, and, and he decided that in his own platform that he has, which isn't a huge platform, right? Like, I mean, he's a high school football player. Like, he's he's not saying that he deserves to have LeBron James platform or anything like that, but within the, the role that he has, uh, he decided he wanted to, to do something. So he said that he was going to, to sit out the first scrimmage and Katie's first game kind of in protest to bring awareness and uh, and bring justice to these people. And uh, And the other thing, too, was that, when he did that, his teammate, the other cornerback, Hunter Washington, who's committed to Florida State, so another big-time player, also sat out with him. And so, uh, again, their their idea was that, you know, look, it's easy to say that these are issues that only impact people globally or, like, far away. And what they wanted to say is, is that, no, I mean, this impacts us. We live in your community. We live in Katy, Texas with you. And, and we feel like this is something that we've seen and we want to do something about and, you know, you talk about Queen City, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's just such a fascinating story because Queen City is a football team that heading into the season had lost 26 straight games. They had a brand new head coach. Uh, it, it's a very diverse team. You know, there's lots of both black and white players on the team. And not everybody wanted to do something, right? Uh, you know, some of the black players said, well, we just want to kneel just because we want to bring attention. And again, this is in, you know, Far East Texas, up kind of near Texarkana, right? Like, like this is this is East Texas. <laughs> and so, um, but, you know, these Queen City players were like, look, we know that we're going to hear about it. We know that people are going to talk about it. We know that people, you know, some people aren't going to be happy about it. But it's just important to us to feel like we're saying something 
in this community and that we're using, again, our limited platform to be able to do that. So there were players who were both black and white who took a knee, and there were players who were both black and white who decided to stand and and held their hands on their teammates' shoulders to show solidarity with them. And so, um, and the funny yeah. thing about that, right, again, yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking at the, the photo uh, that's in your story right now, and we'll put a link to this in the show notes, uh, but it's, it's just so, it's so interesting to see this. Uh, coming from East Texas, uh, what, what was like some of the reaction like? As I, I mean, I, I came from East Texas, so it's very interesting for me to see this. I mean, uh, what have you seen the reactions being like uh, covering this? Well, it's kind of funny. Uh, I, I don't know if I've put this out publicly a whole lot, but, you know, the way that we heard about this story for the first time was that somebody messaged our page being, this needs to go viral for being such a disgrace, right? And and look, I mean, I think that our role as a news organization is to tell the stories of people, right? And, and for us, you know, look, it, it doesn't really matter so much what you think about it. What matters is that I, you know, I felt like it was our job to, yeah. to see high school players and high school coaches doing something. It was our job to at least let them explain themselves, right? At least let them say something about it. And, you know, so so look, there were a lot of people in that community that weren't happy. And, you know, that, that's one of the things that you kind of, uh, you know, for me, I, I obviously grew up in, you know, Texas as well in a, in a great community. But, you know, it is sometimes easy to kind of feel like because your community is closed and your community is good, that this doesn't exist in your community, but that's what this is about to them is showing that, you know, this is something that matters to us too, even though we are kind of in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, the coach really stood by them, like really, really stood by them. And, um, and again, he was a first time coach at this school uh, coaching in his first game. And, you know, so I, I give him a ton of credit for at least letting his players be him. I mean, he stood, right. He, he never considered kneeling, but he wanted to to show that he still supported his players for making their own decisions. And the funny thing about it, uh, and kind of the crazy thing about it is again, Queen City had a 26 game losing streak heading into the season. And a lot of people were like, Oh my gosh, you're just dividing the team, all this and that they've won three straight games to open the year uh, in Queen City. So look again, I, I think that it's just been a really great story of how people who, you know, aren't necessarily sure how they feel about it, aren't necessarily sure how they want to express themselves. They had those conversations among themselves. And I, I don't remember if I put this quote in the story, but, you know, Eric Drotty, the coach over there at Queen City, said something along the lines of, like, I don't know why, you know, these kids who are, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old are so able to have these conversations. Adults seem to be so unable to have them. And and for me, you know, what he said was that, you know, for me, I, I think that it's because, you know, these kids aren't old enough that they realize that they need to have picked a side as yet. And so, you know, I, I just thought that, that was really great words, you know, and obviously, you know, as a coach, he's dealing with both the parent reaction, the administrator reaction and the student reaction. So, look, I, they knew when they did it, it was going to be a big deal. Um, and, and they were willing to, to withstand the consequences. And moving to the college side just for a second, you know, we've really seen a lot of this activism start. Um, we've seen the Big 12 actually as a conference put out some some pro, you know, Black Lives uh, content, for example. You know, they have an ad that's run before uh, the games that I've seen and during the games that I've seen kind of trying to bring attention to the issue. Um, and individual schools have kind of taken big roles in this. You know, uh, at Baylor, We've seen players 
come out and have marches and take to the streets and have signs and stuff. And, you know, I will mention Dave Aranda is the only minority coach in the big 12. So I do think that that does make Baylor, you know, sort of uniquely hand, uh, uniquely positioned to handle something like this. And, and I think that he's handled it uh, in, a, in a pretty good way. You know, at Texas and Texas A&M, there have been big protests led by players. Like some players actually at Texas uh, said that they were going to sit out after they made sort of a list of, of requests of the university. And they got a lot of those concessions. I mean, at Texas A&M, you know, the big firestorm has been over, a, a statue of a Confederate general uh, on campus and their quarterback has been right at the forefront of leading it. And he's gotten a lot of flack from it uh, from people around uh, the university and around the state, because it's a statue that's generally beloved by, by a lot of historical Texas A&M students. So it's definitely been an interesting time, but more than anything, I think the thing that you say about this moment is that players always have you know players are realizing they have the right to say something it doesn't mean that something's going to happen it doesn't mean that something's going to change but at least they know and are starting to learn really in earnest that you know what this reality that existed before that you know we're just gonna be quiet not say anything like we're not accepting that anymore and there are a lot of coaches uh at the college level who kind of thrive on we're going to button up our entire program. You know, Iowa, Kirk Ferentz at the University of Iowa is one of those guys. He's been a coach there for like 23 years at this point. He's been the type of coach who's like, they actually said afterwards that they were allowed to have one pre-approved tweet per month. I mean, that's not something that can exist in the year 2020 and no longer does it exist in the year 2020. Yeah. It's, it's going to be very interesting to, to see how all of these forces, you know, a year with uh, a pandemic and unprecedented levels of just not just football events, but events uh, across the field. We're in uh, strategic planning mode right now and planning for our events that go into 2021. Um, it's, so it's going to be very interesting to see how the pieces of a pandemic, uh, racial injustice and, and racial unrest meeting what in some cases are like actual action around racial reconciliation uh, on top of an election on top of whatever else is coming for us in 2020. Um, If you were to kind of like sum up that one thing to kind of like watch for in the rest of the season, uh, what's that one thing you're going to be watching for? I think more than anything is, I really want to see schools and universities do a good job of handling this virus. Um, you know, there's there's obviously been a lot of talk about, you know, well, we don't know exactly how it affects young people. But the big thing is that colleges are super spreader events, right, uh, when they're not handled correctly. We're seeing in a lot of these co- schools and communities, you know, we're, we're talking four or 5,000 cases in some of these schools, right? And the issue is, too, right, is that once kids have it, it spreads it to the community. So for us, you know, the biggest thing that I want to see, obviously, I didn't think heading into the year that there was much chance that we were going to have a full football season. And I think that actually, there's been a lot of optimism based on, on how things have been handled, that it has been, you know, generally kept under control since the season started, uh, for the most part. I mean, again, there will be cancellations, that's just going to be part of it. But, um, you know, I really want to see, you know, can we in a lot of ways, do what Baylor's done. Can we take this curve and kind of 
keep it down and, and keep it flat, right? And and I think that's something that, again, you know, looking at Baylor's numbers, I think they've done a really good job. And it's going to take things like, you know what, like we saw at the Baylor game, there were a lot of students who were packed really close together. That's going to be something that I think that, that schools are going to have to address. That's not a Baylor issue, but that's something that obviously is happening at Baylor too, right? And so uh, that's really the biggest thing I want to see. I want to see the numbers stay low. I want to uh, see that it's possible for us to have 25% capacity and have people wear masks and have people go to football games and have fun and, and obviously be able to watch football on TV. I just want to see this continue. I want to stay on the track that I'm at, uh, that we're at. And I want to try to do it as safely as possible so that, uh, so that we're not making sacrifices of people just to watch the game that we love. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch for, all of us. So Shahan, thank you so much for talking with me for a little bit. And thanks so much for your continued contribution to the Baylor Line Foundation. Thanks so much for having me. That's my interview with Shahan Jayaraja. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you're interested in the stories we mentioned or how to follow Shahan's reporting, you can find lots of links in the bottom of the show notes. You can join me next time for a conversation with one of the biggest names in publishing, leadership, and self-development, Baylor graduate Michael Hyatt. You can click the follow button to make sure you get each episode in your feed wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you haven't reviewed our podcast yet, would you do that right now? You're one of the very best sources for our new listeners, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can post your review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're currently listening to this. We're eager to hear from you, and I promise we do read every single review. Good, bad, indifferent, your reviews help us make this podcast better and remain the voice for you in the Baylor family. Our show is produced by the Baylor Line Foundation with audio production by Michael Echterling. Research is by Rachel Cooper. Our director of marketing is Kaylee Davis. Special thanks to Tony Peterson, Bob Darden, and El Jefe, Alan Holt. I'm Jonathan Platt.